It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Welcome to the We Just Got Our Asses Swept edition of Rico Bronia. Evan Roberts, Pete Hoffman, the New York Mets lost a heartbreaker to the Milwaukee Brewers to get swept. Uh, if you want to hear reaction to game one and two and our instant anger, Towards that embarrassment, I would say go into the archives. We did an instant reaction right after the Mets lost game two to the Brewers. So we're not going to spend too much time on the first two games. As far as this game is concerned, we'll break it down. We'll also get you ready for opening day. The latest news around Omar Narvaez's injury. Francisco Alvarez may be coming. So there's a lot to discuss on the Rico. We'll also get to your emails. As far as this game is concerned, it sucks. Losing in a walk-off is painful. It's painful when it's a game that early on you feel good about because right out the gate, Francisco Lindor rips an RBI double. And so five minutes into this game, you're thinking, all right, the offense is finally going to break through. And wouldn't this be fitting to do it against Corbin Burns, one of the better pitchers in baseball? Early one nothing lead, David Peterson flushes it away immediately he had very little command today, and that's not just the five walks. He just had no idea where the baseball was going. He obviously implodes in the second inning, gives up the three-run bomb to Joey Weimer, and I thought it was over. <laughs> I Honestly, I thought we were looking at a very similar game to what we saw on Monday and Tuesday. I thought this was going to be an ass-whooping. And to the credit of the New York Mets, I'm not going to give him a lot of credit on this episode, but I'm going to give him a little bit of credit right now. They immediately fought back. And I was surprised by that. And the positive sign that we saw was they fought back with the stars. They fought back with a bloop double by Starling Marte. They fought back with a, a ripped RBI single by Francisco Lindor, who was great in this game. And they fought back because Pete Alonso pulled a Mike Piazza, one of the opposite field to right center, for a two-run home run that tied the game up and from being down four to one to instantly tying it against Corbin Burns. I know Corbin Burns is off to a tough start when you look at his opening day start against Chicago and this game against the Mets, but it's still Corbin Burns. And the way he so easily pitched a one, two, three inning in the second, I thought this was going to be a typical ace performance where he got roughed up a little bit in the first, got through it, and he did because he got that big strike out of Alonzo and got McNeil to fly out with two men on base, so it could have been worse. I thought after that one, two, three second inning, he was going to dominate. I always want to be honest. I was dead wrong about that. And the Mets immediately fought back. They took the lead a few innings later when Pete Alonzo went deep again, and they're up six to four. And then we saw what really did them in in this game, and that was the bullpen. And this is the first time all year we can really say that. I know the bullpen wasn't great the last two nights, but they also just kind of let a game that was out of hand get even more out of hand. You know what I mean? Carlos Carrasco wasn't good. Max Scherzer wasn't good. We weren't going to harp on the bullpen. But when you have a 6-4 to four lead 
And now you're asking Drew Smith, who's one of the the arms in the circle of trust to get big outs, and he can't. And we'll get to Adam Adovino. That's a bullpen failure. So let's start criticizing Buck because I got a few things. I got a few things to be angry about with this manager. Let's start with the fifth inning. So it's all set up. The Mets take a 6-4 to four lead. Alonzo hits the two-run home run. They got Corbin Burns at the game, which turned out to be the worst thing in the world because the Mets couldn't hit the Brewers' bullpen. The Mets got zero hits and one base runner against the Brewer bullpen. So chasing Burns was not the greatest thing. But they chase him. They have the lead. It's 6-4. to four. It's the bottom of the fifth inning. And we all assume Peterson's done because David Peterson was not good in this game. He wasn't. He walked the guy, I think, in every inning he pitched except the fourth inning. His command was awful. He was very fortunate to actually get through this thing. He struck out Willie Adamas to end the fourth inning, and I pointed to the sky and said, great, it's not a complete disaster. Get his ass out the game. And for some reason, and I don't know why, you can't give me this lefty-lefty garbage. Buck Showalter allows David Peterson to start the fifth inning against Christian Yelich. Now, I want to be fair. He had struck out Yelich twice in this game. I acknowledge that. But he's thrown 87 pitches. He was lucky to get through these four innings. I don't care what he did to Yelich in the first and third inning. Because I'm thinking to myself, Christian Yelich, though he's not the same guy he was in 2019, you give him a third at-bat against David Peterson, he's probably ripping a single. Now, instead, David Peterson couldn't find the strike zone, and he walked him on five pitches. At that point, Buck takes him out. I think it was one batter too late, and I thought that at the time. While I appreciate lefty-lefty, <laughs> I do, I just don't think in these circumstances it was the right call considering how mediocre Peterson had been. So now Drew Smith comes into a game in which it's not a clean inning. He's got a two-run lead, and there's already a runner on first and nobody out. And Drew Smith was very, very shaky. Contreras hit one to deep right field. Luckily, the ballpark held it. He gives up the single to Luke Voigt. He strikes out Brian Anderson, and I don't know what Brian Anderson was looking for. I think it was like a changeup right down the middle, and Anderson was just completely confused. And then the Jesse Winker at bat. And look, there are certain guys who just kill us over and over and over again. And you can change their uniforms and you can change what division they're in and you can change the league. It doesn't freaking matter. And obviously I'm talking not just about Jesse Winker. I'm talking about Brian Anderson who ripped the Mets apart. But Jesse Winker of all people, of all people, that son of a bitch rips a three, two double that he smoked against Drew Smith. And now the 6-4 lead is gone. And my confidence level, I think all of our confidence levels, went right through the toilet. So it didn't take the bullpen very long to blow that lead. It happened immediately in the fifth inning. Now, credit to John Curtis. John Curtis comes in. He pitches reasonably well, keeps the game tied. Credit to David Robertson. David Robertson comes in, except he comes in in the eighth inning. And I was very confused by this. I think Gary Cohen was as well. Now, at this point, Craig and I are about to sign on the air. The Yankees play during the afternoon, so I was fortunate enough to watch all of the Met game along with the Yankee game. But we're going to sign on the air, tie game, eighth inning. I mean, you can't, you can't ask for more. 
But the bottom of the order is coming up, and Buck goes to David Robertson. And when he does this, I'm very, very confused because I'm not a believer as much as I wanted this game today that David Robertson should be asked to get six outs. Uh, I'm not that crazy. So when Buck after the game says, yeah, I wasn't going to ask him to get six outs. It's early in the season. I agree with him. Now, I know a lot of people out there may disagree, and they look at this game as ultra important and say, screw it. You got to get the win. It is April 5th. So I'm not bitching about Buck because Robertson didn't pitch two innings. I want to make that clear. That is not my criticism. You absolutely have a right to have that criticism. I'm just choosing not to have it. My criticism was you got the bottom of the order coming up. You've got Winker, you've got Terang, and you've got Weimer. Two lefties and a righty. I acknowledge that. In the ninth inning, you've got a lefty, a righty, and a lefty. So pretty much the same in terms of the splits between lefties and righties. The Brewers have one more lefty on the bench, really two, because Caratini's on the bench too as a switch hitter. So just to set everything up, but it's the bottom of the Brewers' order. It's Winker, Terang, and Weimer. Top of the order would be Mitchell, Adamas, and Yelich. When he goes to David Robertson, I thought, what, is he really going to ask him to get two innings? Because why else are you going to your best reliever? And I happen to think he is that as of right now. That can change based on the way the season goes. But as of right now, their best reliever is David Robertson. He's the guy who I would trust against lefties or righties. And so he's going to his best reliever to face the bottom of the order in the bottom of the eighth inning. It didn't make any sense to me. You go to Adam Adovino first, then you go to David Robertson. I want Robertson to face better hitters. Now, if Adovino runs into trouble, you want to break glass in case of emergency and go to Robertson with guys on base in the eighth inning? Absolutely. Now you're just trying to keep the game tied. And you kind of go to desperation mode thinking there may not be a ninth inning. And David Robertson comes in and was great. Bing, bing, bing. He barely breaks a sweat. He pitches a one, two, three inning. I still didn't think there was any way Buck would allow Robertson to pitch a second inning, even though he only threw 12 pitches. And then he goes to Adam Adovino, which I, I, I get why he's going to Adam Adovino. Who else is he going to? He's not going to Dennis Santana. He's not going to go to Danny Reyes. He's not going to go to Brooks Raleigh, who pitched batting practice the day before. He's, I, I totally get the Adovino-Robertson thing. I just didn't like the order of it. And I looked closer at it to see, hey, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe David Robertson has really bad numbers against Christian Yelich. Maybe he has really bad numbers against Willie Adamas. Christian Yelich, 0 for 5 with four strikeouts against David Robertson. Willie Adamas, 1 for 5. Obviously, there's no history between Garrett Mitchell and Adam Adovino, Garrett Mitchell, and David Robertson. So I did not like the Robertson-Ottavino order. You know, last year I loved when Buck did that, when he would flip-flop Ottavino and Edwin Diaz. But it always made sense when he did it. It was always like, oh, I see why you did that. The heart of the order is coming up. I'm going to use my best pitcher against the heart of the order. I don't see the matchups making any sense. I don't see who is coming up making any sense. I don't understand the order of Robertson-Ottavino. Now, is this the reason they lost the game? The Met bats went limp again. The Met bats could not figure out the Brewer bullpen. But if they're able to get through the ninth inning with the hokey extra inning rules and Devin Williams out the game, so you're probably looking at who's coming into this game. Varland, Payamps, Gura. Those are the only three relievers they have left. 
So I would love my chances in the top of the 10th inning if I've got Nimmo on second, nobody out with Marte Lindor Alonso coming up. Believe it or not, I'm thinking to myself as the bottom of the ninth starts, you know, geez, they get these three outs. I think we're going to win this game. I'm just looking at who's coming up and who's left in the Brewer bullpen. So it just, it annoyed me. It's not the reason they lost necessarily. I guess it could be the reason they lost. They lost because their bullpen blew a lead. They lost because David Peterson was really ineffective. And they lost because as much as the offense showed us something in this game, it went to sleep after the fifth inning and did nothing against the Brewer bullpen. And to lose on a walk-off, it stings. It sucks. They got swept. And now we got to eat it for the next 48 hours. So uh, you're right about the fact that it may not have made much of a difference. And I, with, with who was first, whether it's Ottavino or Robertson, but I got to be honest, if Ottavino pitched the eighth inning, I think Weimer or somebody else would have hit a home <laughs> run off of him anyway. I mean, that's just the, that's honestly the, everybody in the Brewer lineup had a big hit this entire series. I mean, who the hell are these guys? I'm talking about Weimer and Mitchell, like they're, they're, they're all stars that they're all the, well, the future hall of famers. Every you know who they are. And this should make you angry. And this is going to make a lot of people angry. They're good, young, talented rookies. That's what they are. These guys are not bums. They're young prospects who are getting a chance to play. And I know that hearing that is going to be obnoxious and annoying because as Met fans, we're frustrated that a lot of our good young prospects are not getting to play. And every time there's an update about Ronnie Mauricio, or there was an update about Brett Beatty before the thumb injury, or there's an update about Alvarez, and we'll get to him coming up in the news around him, we'd be excited, but we'd also be frustrated because we'd say, why are they not here? Meanwhile, Joey Weimer is here. Garrett Mitchell is here. Bryce Terang is here. And who they are, are young players with promising futures that are getting an opportunity to play for a team that has expectations. Maybe not the expectations of the Mets, obviously, but you know how I feel about them. We had our MLB prediction episode. I'm not pulling that out of my ass. I think the Brewers can win the NL Central. I think they're certainly capable of it, and they better, they better because here's the thing. Brandon Woodruff, he's going to be a free agent soon. Corbin Burns, he hates the franchise. <laughs> Devin Williams, they'll probably trade him too at some point. So the clock ticks on a mid-market to small market team like Milwaukee. But those guys who damaged us, they're not nobodies. Now, they may have been nobodies till we got a chance to watch them, but the Brewers were just going bombs away throughout this entire series. And the Mets didn't pitch. You know, a lot of the attention's been on the offense, and I understand why. They got shut out two games in a row and didn't score for 20 innings. But the pitching in this series, Pete, between Max Scherzer and Carlos Carrasco to David Peterson, their starting pitching was awful over these three games. Now, and I got to be honest, I didn't realize that Peterson actually had started that that fifth inning right away because mm-hmm. I looked up and I'm like, why are they focusing on Peterson uh, when when Smith is up? And I'm like, they walked Yelich already. This is ridiculous. And I totally missed that. And I look back, I'm like, why Why did they keep Peterson in? That was so frustrating. He's been off all game long. Yeah, I mean, the, the answer doesn't mean I like the answer, but the answer is the lefty-lefty. The answer is, hey, I can get Peterson-Yelich as a matchup. 
The Mets only have one lefty in their bullpen in Brooks Raleigh, who I don't think was available in this game after yesterday. And the Brewers are a heavy platoon team. So I, I think it was matchup. I don't agree with it because I think sometimes managers get too obsessed with lefty-lefty and righty-righty. Sometimes you just have to have a feel for the game. The guy wasn't pitching well. <laughs> it, it's as simple as that. Like, he just didn't pitch a good baseball game. And, you know, I know he handled Yelich, but remember earlier in this game, in that second inning when the Brewers eventually took the lead, they had the 4-1 to lead, one of the big hits in that inning was a double by Jesse Winker, which is lefty-lefty. So it's not as if Peterson was annihilating every left-handed uh, batter he saw. A couple other thoughts on this game. We'll move on to a lot of other things surrounding this team as they get set for the home opener now on Friday. David Peterson was called for a pitch clock violation, which made me laugh because David Peterson is one of the fastest workers on the Mets staff. Uh, during the offseason, when we were talking about the pitch clock and who is it going to affect, I remember saying to you, hey, David Peterson works faster than anybody. But his issue was the same issue that Garrett Cole had in the Yankee game. And if you missed what happened in the Yankee game, Garrett Cole was brilliant, uh, not to knock him. But his last moment on the mound was a 3-2 pitch in which him and Jose Trevino could not agree on a call. No one called timeout, pitch clock violation, ball four. And that was it. And Boone took him out of the game. Not, not because of that. He was pretty much done. That was his last batter. I think the Peterson pitch clock thing with Contreras was very similar, where it was simply the catcher and the pitcher not getting together on signs. And one adjustment that needs to be made is you're allowed to disengagements. Disengagement is not just picking a guy off at first base. A disengagement, which we saw today, by the way, Peterson picked off Adamas, which was very cool. But you could just step off. Like, you have that ability to do it. Um, so I think what pitchers and catchers are going to need to do is remember that they have that in their back pocket. Obviously, if you've already used the disengagements, that's the problem that you have. But I don't think if you go through these uh, at-bats, pitchers are using their allotment of disengagements. So what the Yankees should have done, and Boone said it after the game, and what the Mets should have done, and this guy's got to learn and they got to remember – is step off, call timeout. Like, you're allowed to do that. You just got to do it in the right amount of time. It turned out not to be a big play in this game. It turned out to just be a ball. He got Contreras out anyway. So it wasn't a big moment, but, you know, we've seen a handful of pitch clock violations. Uh, not Tuesday, but we saw four of them on Monday, and then obviously we saw one in this game on Wednesday. I'd like to say I told you so. About What? That there's still gonna be, it wasn't gonna be this flawless system that you're like, oh, everyone's gonna figure it out by the yeah. time season starts. <laughs> you know, you're gonna hate me for saying this, and maybe I'm just so in love with the pitch clock. I still think for the most part it's been flawless. Like we haven't seen anything catastrophic. I know Manny Machado got ejected arguing uh his deal where they called a strikeout on him at the eight second mark. So I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but we haven't seen your fear of a game being decided on it. That hasn't happened. Oh. Well, it will happen. It hasn't happened yet. It, it will. It will happen. I'm telling you right now, the same way that Garrett Cole couldn't get together with Trevino. Just imagine a no hitter getting affected because, or perfect game getting affected because they couldn't figure out the the final pitch on a three two pitch, and he walks I, the guy a ball. Forward. I don't mind that. Then it's not a perfect game, right? Exactly. <laughs> but that's so stupid. Again, no, listen, it's not. You, you, you should have. Call the Should have disengaged. Should have disengaged. Should have disengaged. <laughs> again, listen. It's it's not a it's not flawless yet, and it might not be forever. It but again, I just 
don't want a game to be ruined over it, and the games haven't been ruined over it. It has not happened yet. We are seeing a violation of game, no doubt about it, but like the one in the Met game on Wednesday, it had no impact on the game. It re- it just didn't. Like the one in the Yankee game, you could argue could have. It led to a walk, and that guy ended up scoring. By the way, it was bases so, loaded. It was bases yeah. loaded. It was a bad spot for for everybody. Yeah. Well, no, it led to the bases being loaded. It didn't happen with the bases loaded. It was the first guy that got on base. But yes, it led to a a Philadelphia Philly rally. Absolutely. The other thing from this game that I got to bring up. I mean, we cannot ignore this. Is we saw one of the worst umpired calls in the history of baseball. Omar Narvaez in the fourth inning with one out hits a line drive over first. It looks like it's a base hit. Sean Barber, the first base umpire, calls it foul. Okay, I, I guess we were wrong. We see the replay. It's not close. It's not like it hit the chalk. It's a foot fair. So Buck's going to challenge it, of course. The rule, by the way, is if it's past first base, you can challenge it. If it's before the base, you can't challenge it. Anyhow, Buck's going to challenge it. The umpires, because I think every other umpire saw that it was fair, meet up and rule it to be fair. Okay, great. They got the call right. The problem is it was a line drive over first that bounced off the stands that jettison out. We have no idea if Narvaez ends up on second or not. My guess, I, I want to be honest, my guess is no. My guess is no, because the right fielder, who at the time was Brian Anderson, made the play quick enough where I think Narvaez holds up at first. But the fact that Sean Barber had to F this up, the umpires had to like make a decision. Ah, where should we send them? And of course, they sent him to first base, and nothing happens. <laughs> the, Mets, the Mets don't get him in, but... I just needed to point that out because that was one of the worst calls ever. So uh, it's funny. We've seen that in the NFL now where if a rule is egregious, like a, a play is egregious, they have the expedited replay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. By, by the way, let's change that. MLB should institute that. You have plenty of time in between where you have limited amount of challenges. The Mets have gotten burnt so many times already this season. They do – if there's something so obvious – they shouldn't have to have like the umpires get together. They should be like, hey, by the way, idiots, it's fair ball. Move yeah, on with play. They, they they pretty much did that. I mean, that was they, basically they the other did. umpires correcting the mistake. The other umpires saw that. What are you what are you doing, bro? It's not even close. Um, so they in a way kind of did that. The problem is you're trying to make an assumption. You're trying to figure out where to stick the guy. Because the question to me wasn't fair or foul. The question is. Where are you sticking the guy? Where does Narvaez go? And I don't, I mean, again, I'm guessing that he would have been only on first base, but we don't know. Who knows? Maybe he would have tried to go to second. He would have been thrown out. I have no idea. The Brewer defense was so frustratingly awesome. And here's what made their defense awesome. You and I have watched a lot of Luke Voigt because Luke Voigt was on the New York Yankees. Luke Voigt was a freaking butcher at first base. And yet, you watch him on Wednesday, and he's Rico Bronya. <laughs> I mean, he's making he's making every freaking play. And if that's not bad enough, Brian Anderson, who starts the game in right field, moves to third base after Aroldis Chapman's friend Mike Brousseau was pinch hit for in the sixth inning. So now Anderson goes to third base, and to start the eighth inning as the Mets are trying to start a rally. Pete Alonzo rips a base hit, except Brian Anderson makes a great diving play 
throws the first, first, the throw to first is low, and Luke Voigt makes this incredible scoop. I was so sick on that play. Anderson shifts to third, looks like Brooks Robinson. Voigt, who's a stiff at first base, looks like Rico Bronia. And that just killed me because, of course, next batter is Vogelbach, who draws a walk. LeCastro pinch runs for him. He steals second base. He does exactly what he needs to do. And then Jeff McNeil and Mark Hanna do nothing. I know you guys, and you're one of them, Pete, you all have this hard-on for Daniel Vogelback. You all think he sucks. Daniel Vogelback, I know he hasn't hit a home run yet. I know he hasn't driven in a run yet. I get that. The guy got on base three times on Wednesday. He was 0-for-1 with three walks. I'm good with that. I got to tell you, as much as I'd love to see him hit bombs, if he's going to get on base three times a game, I'm, I'm good. All right, so I don't disagree with the whole on-base stuff, but here's the problem. Vogelback, Vogelback is brought in here for a reason. It's to play that DH role, and we need power out of that. We need protection. If it's just an on-base person, get somebody more like uh, you know Nimmo, someone who could add to like the speed to it or something like that. If there's someone available like that, don't bring in a big husky guy who tries to lay out a double gets thrown out. Like Vogelback doesn't add enough power. Well, or doesn't he, hit for enough power to, to add at the DH spot. Nah, here's where you get, here's where you're right. Daniel Vogelback's got to hit home runs. I, I agree with you on that. I, I like the fact that he got on base three times on Wednesday, but yeah, I mean the Mets offensive issues and they're very similar to last year. That's why I, I don't panic necessarily that the offense is going to be the reason this team struggles despite what happened over the first two games against Milwaukee. Their offense needs more pop. That was their biggest issue last year, and they scored the fifth most runs in all of Major League Baseball. They don't hit enough home runs. They don't get enough extra base hits. So whether it's Vogelback supplying that, whether it's Alvarez or Beatty or Mauricio from the minor supplying that, it's tough to just rely on that coming from Pete Alonzo and Francisco Lindor. Like, I love Jeff McNeil. Jeff McNeil is, I don't want to say he's Luis Arise, but he kind of is. Like, he's a single sitter. And I, there's nothing wrong with being a single sitter, especially if you're going to hit 330. But you need your lineup to have a mix of everything. And while the Mets put bat on ball, which is tremendous, I love that. I mean, think about this game they played. On Wednesday against Milwaukee, they are facing one of the great strikeout pitchers in baseball. They're facing a bullpen that they couldn't hit. They only struck out five times. Now, what the hell does that mean if you don't score enough runs? It doesn't mean anything. It's like when the Yankees strike out 17 times, but they score seven runs. Okay, they scored seven runs. So, but, but I do like the fact that this is a lineup that puts the bat on the ball. They do need to add that pop. And that pop can come from within. And here's what's fascinating. The New York Mets have put Pete Hoffman in a very difficult situation. Omar Narvaez left this game in the eighth inning. He was replaced by Tomas Nito. And I wasn't really sure why. At that point, Craig and I were signing on the air, so I was trying to figure out what the hell happened to Omar Narvaez. Does he need a break? The guy's played half the games this season. What's going on here? It turned out he was feeling something in his calf. So took a precaution, got him out of the game. The Mets are going to check him out once they get back to New York and find out, hey, is this serious or not? They have decided that the catcher they're going to call to New York, just in case Narvaez needs to go on the IL, which is absolutely on the table. The guy they're calling to New York 
is not who we thought it would be because there was an assumption and I forget who said it. Maybe I said it, maybe you said it. Maybe we both said it <laughs> that, that if the Mets have any issues behind the plate, they're not going to call up Alvarez. They're going to call up. Uh, what's his name? The guy who played with us last Mike year. Michael Perez. Uh, what was that? Michael Perez. Michael Perez. Thank you very much. For some reason I wanted to call him Alex Perez. I don't know why that they were going to call Michael Perez. Now Perez is at Syracuse. He's not on the 40-man roster, so let's go through all these facts here. They can very easily add him because Jose Quintana can just be put on the 60-day DL. He's not on the 60-day IL. He's on the 10-day IL, 15-day IL. I'm so confused with ILs and DLs. Uh, So it would have been easy, but that's not what they're doing. Francisco Alvarez is going to New York, and so less than a week into this season, or basically a week into this season, After Buck Showalter said, if Alvarez comes to the majors, that's a bad thing. Well, the bad thing has happened. And here's Pete Hoffman, who has to root now for Omar Narvaez to be hurt. Omar Narvaez is off to a good start. But you have to hope he's hurt so you get to see your guy, Francisco Alvarez. Whoa, 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 whoa. I don't have to hope and root for Narvaez to get hurt. He is hurt. (laughs) He's already done. I have, there's nothing to root for. It's already, it's or where, whoever made this happen, it's happened already. And the results are not going to be changed because I'm praying or whatever, rooting for anything. And when Alvarez gets the call, it, it is what it is. I'm not going to be upset by Alvarez getting called up. So if the news comes out that Narvaez is okay and Francisco's going back to Syracuse, what would your reaction be? Um, Okay. <laughs> It's it's it sucks, and I expect it to happen because right now when it rains it pours, which is why there's no opening home opener tomorrow or Thursday. Right, right, right. <laughs> I, you know, I, I like Omar Narvaez, and he's actually gotten off to a pretty decent start offensively. I I kind of wish this was Nito, though. <laughs> I have to admit because I think that Narvaez and Alvarez can both hit. Tomas Nito can't hit. We, we know that. That's why I was so angry about the non-bunt from a couple of days ago. But I do like the fact, I have to admit, that Alvarez is the guy getting the call. Because this offense needs what we just described, which is pop. And if Omar Narvaez is going to go on the injured list and he's going to miss a couple of weeks, I don't think there's any doubt that, in my opinion, and in your opinion, and just everyone else's opinion, Francisco Alvarez should not come up here to back up Tomas Nito. He should come up here to play. And there's something interesting I noticed. It's such a small sample size of AAA action. And we're going to talk a, about a few things that are going on at Syracuse that I think are really intriguing, good intriguing, and bad intriguing. Here's the good intriguing. Five guys have tried to steal a base against Francisco Alvarez so far during this season. Two of them have successfully done it. The other three were thrown out. Very small sample size. That's tremendous. And it's also important. For years now, when we talk about catching defense, that aspect of catching defense has totally been ignored. Like, when's the last time you ever heard about, hey, what's this catcher's caught stealing percentage? You never hear it anymore. That was a stat that mattered 20 years ago, and it mattered because guys tried to steal bases. We've seen through the first week of the year, guys are trying to run. The Miami Marlins are going to face the Mets again. John Birdie may be in the starting lineup every single game, especially with this injury to Chaz Chisholm and Joey Wendell. Both guys are hurt. Really, the injury to Wendell, not as much. I guess they both guys, because Birdie can play anywhere. 
John Birdie's going to try to steal base. And I like that that aspect of Alvarez's game seems pretty strong. Plus, he can hit a little bit. He gives you a puncher's chance at the plate more than Tomas Nito. I hope Narvaez is okay because I think Narvaez is a good player. I think there's a chance he can produce the way he did two years ago or three years ago and not what he did last year, and he's off to a good start. But this is an opportunity, and this is a big opportunity because ask yourself this, Pete. I do believe Alvarez would play if Narvaez goes on the I.L. I don't think it's just a wish you and I have. I think he'll play. I don't think they're calling him up to be a backup. If they were calling him up, if they were calling anybody up to be a backup, it would be Michael Perez. It would not be Francisco Alvarez. So I think that's a tell that he would play. What if he hits? What if he plays and he hits? What if he plays and he has good defense behind home plate? What if all that happens? They going to return his ass to Syracuse? No, what they should do is that's your solution for right-handed DH. So maybe he doesn't catch all the time, but he's there as that as that bat. And then you'll just have to go back and forth between Narvaez okay. and Alvarez. So here's the issue. I, I want to run through this roster stuff because this is a problem. I, I totally get what you're saying. I was in favor of that during the offseason. But I was always in favor of that under the condition that there was a third catcher on the roster. So let's run through a game situation, and I'll show you the issue. Alvarez is the right-handed DH, okay? Tomas Nito's catching. It's the seventh inning. There are two on, two out, Mets are down a run, and Nito's up. What are you doing? You're going to pitch in for him? You want to, right? You're trying to win the baseball game. Of course. If you pinch hit for him, you've just lost the designated hitter because the moment you pinch hit for him, and now you need someone to catch the next inning, the only guy on your roster who can catch is the guy who's DHing. And if he DHs and then moves to catcher, newsflash, you just lost the DH. And now you got to deal with the pitcher spot, which while I miss it, I wouldn't want it that way. You know what I mean? So it doesn't work. Like Francisco Alvarez comes up here, Pete. He's the catcher. Now, if he hits and now Narvaez is coming back and you want to keep him on the roster and say goodbye to Tim LaCastro or something like that, then you can make it work. But the problem all along with the third catcher was they love versatility and they love defense. And the fact that Nito, Narvaez, and Alvarez only play catcher, you sort of lose that versatility that I know that they would want. Or you do what you've been begging, you've been begging for, which is get rid of a relief arm. That's what it has to do. You have to do it. Wow. Have you have you seen the last few days? Well, who the hell they just call? Who the hell they just call up the other day? They some guy I don't even know who it was. Danny um, Reyes. They called up Danny Reyes, but here's where my argument takes a hit. I, I'd be the first to admit it. I raised my hand. Their pitching over the last three days have been so bad. Their bullpen's been overtaxed. So the the greatest argument against my point about carrying future pitchers would be these last three games and say, well, you're going to carry less pitchers. You got nobody freaking left. You had Luis Guillerme pitching an inning the other day. So, and by the way, I acknowledge that. And I'll admit this. The Mets starting pitching could be the main reason why I will never get what I want of 12 arms. Because this pitching staff needs to go deeper into games. Now, we're seven games into the year. The Mets are three and four. I'm not panicking over three and four. I don't think any of us should panic over three and four. You know, they're a half game out of a wild card spot. That's not the point. 
but we've seen things over these first seven games that you absolutely can say concern you. I think a lot of our attention over the last few days is about the offense. The offense doesn't concern me on a level of a one to 10, 10. It, it just doesn't because I also think Pete, they have options. If things continue to go bad, they've got the Beatty option. They have the Alvarez option who we just talked about. They have the Vientos option. They got a lot of internal options before we ever get to the trade deadline and how they can improve this offense. Plus their biggest problem with the offense is that their best players weren't performing at least for the finale of this series against the Brewers. They started performing. So for me, the offense, there's levels of concern. It's not through the roof. The bullpen, I'm not overly concerned yet. David Robertson has looked great. John Curtis looked very good on Wednesday. Brooks Raleigh had looked good. He had one bad performance. Adam Ottavino just needs to be used in the right situations. He was not. And look, the Brewer lineup has a lot to do with it. The first batter he faces is Garrett Mitchell. That's not a great matchup for Adam Ottavino. Drew Smith. That was a little bit of a punch in the balls, I admit. So I think the bullpen is, you know, it is what it is. Like, not overly concerned, not super confident, somewhere in the middle. I think where I'm concerned is with the rotation. And I'll tell you why. David Peterson, as you know, because you're not the biggest David Peterson fan, is up and down. Like, I loved what he did in his first start, but what he did on Wednesday against the Brewers was awful. He walked five guys in four innings, had no command. He was very, very mediocre. And for now, that's who David Peterson is. He's up and down. He deserves this opportunity, and he should continue to get it for at least the next handful of starts. But you cannot rely on David Peterson. Tyler Miguel loved what he did in his first start of the year. Obviously, we can't trust him. He had a good April last year. He was terrible after that and couldn't stay healthy. So Tyler Miguel can't trust him. Deserves the opportunity. Can't trust him. Carlos Carrasco. My levels of concern with Carrasco goes to this velocity being down. And he could say he's healthy. And I, I want to hear these excuses about the pitch clock. Ah, you know what? It takes a lot of energy to throw all those pitches. Dude, there are ways around this. There are ways to give yourself a break when you need it. You're given five mound visits throughout a baseball game. Maybe we should use them. Maybe if Carlos Carrasco is in so much trouble because he's huffing and puffing, maybe you call timeout and you kill some time. But Carlos Carrasco's got to adjust. Where are my levels of concern with him? It's only one start. They're, they're somewhere. I mean, he is what he is. Cookie last year, we, we either got, I used to say this, we either get really good cookie or we get really crappy cookie. We got real crap cook in game number one from him. And then we got the $45 million man. I did some research. I went on Baseball Savant. And I wanted to check out the spin rates, the velocities. Is there anything to be concerned about from Max Scherzer in regards to that? The answer is no. His spin rate, not down considerably with his four-seamer or his slider. It's not. It's higher than his average last year. His velocity is pretty much the same. So what is it? Maybe it's as simple as what Max said. I got to be better. Okay. I'll give him that. He's going to make his third start at the scene of the crime against the team that baptized him, the San Diego Padres. Okay? So when you walk out on that mound, Max, after two very mediocre starts, one was just mediocre, the other one you suck, go out and beat the Padres. Go out and remind us who you are. Justin Verlander, we got a great report on him. Great. The inflammation's down. 
When's he going to pitch? None of us know. Jose Quintana is not walking through that door. And they've also reached the limit of their pitching depth. You don't want to go any deeper than they've already gone. I don't want to see Joey Lucchese. I don't want to see Elisar Hernandez, who's already on the injured list. I don't, I don't see Jose Budo. I don't see any of those guys. McGill and Peterson, I'm fine with. So I think, Pete, tell me if I'm wrong here. Through seven games, if you're ranking the levels of concern, I think my biggest concern is with this rotation. Uh, no, you're right. I, I see. I'm not opposed to Lucchese, but I understand why you're hesitant on him. But I think that would help the solution. If we go to that six-man rotation, maybe we could try to push guys a little further in the, in the games. But if they're struggling so much, they never get there anyway. Then you, Peterson barely can get to the fifth inning. So there, there is that issue. But the, the starting pitching is by far the biggest. And for any hater, any Met fan listening to this podcast right now that sits there and says, oh, you know, we need so much more power. The fact that they brought back all these, you know, contact hitters. That's a great thing. The fact that you have so many veterans that professional hitters, you, like you said, you talked about the strikeouts before. I prefer people that could put bat on ball, which will then, if you do get people in scoring position, because eventually games that we won last year were because guys are on base and we put bat on ball and we were able to be victorious on a game like we lost today. Yeah. Yeah. I, they do, they do need more pop. I think that was their biggest offensive issue last year. I just don't think this offense is crumbling necessarily. The pitching could crumble. You know, it really could, especially with health. They need Justin Verlander healthy. They do. And, you know, I'm glad the inflammation's down, but when's he going to pitch? You know, when's he going to go out there and pitch every five days? Because you need, in the midst of McGill and Peterson and bad cookie, and I haven't mentioned Kodai Senga. And the reason I haven't mentioned Kodai Senga is because he was great in his one start. We have no idea about Kodai Senga. We don't. So I, I can't tell you I have immense confidence in him. It also wouldn't be fair to say he sucks. Like he had one really good start that showed a lot from him. Had such a shaky first inning, fought through it. The ghost fork was dominant. Senga's kind of that guy you put to the side because we really have, we don't have enough data on him. You know, let's see what he does Saturday against the Marlins. I hope he dominates. I'm excited to see him pitch. There was a part of me after the rainout that said, hey, you could pitch Senga at the home opener on his normal rest. But obviously, they're not going to do that. They want to give him the extra day, which is fine. And you're not skipping Tyler McGill. So it was just a thought that popped in my head real quick. But right now, through seven games, small sample size, it is scary thinking about the pitching staff. It's scary thinking about, boy, if Scherzer sucks and Verlander doesn't pitch, it's like, what? Could I could I throw something out there? And This is going to be a tough pill to swallow. I don't know what he's doing over there in Japan, but if things start to crumble and there's no trade inside right now, do you try to make a call for Trevor Bauer? <laughs> no. I, I'm not even joking. You're laughing about it. But no. if you, the guy... If he's pitching well in Japan, dude, have, did you see the last three years when he was in? in no, he was tremendous. I mean, I'm not ripping his pitching. I'm ripping the first of all. I think that when you sign a contract in Japan, he's he's pitching in Japan for the year. There's no out clause necessarily. So I think that that's something you reevaluate at the end of the year. I don't think that's something you can necessarily do in the middle of the season. It's just such a, it's a horrible PR move and. I don't know how you stand there at a press conference and answer questions if you're Billy Epler, but it's not even worth discussing because I don't think that's an option. I think when you sign a contract, 
It's not like you could, can they get Masahiro Tanaka too while we're at it? I mean, no, he's under contract. It doesn't work that way. By the way, make that phone call. <laughs> Steve, Steve Cohen would buy Japan. He'd yeah. be like, listen, I got a ton of money. Just, just, uh, whatever you want. How much is he worth? Six million. I'll give you 12. <laughs> uh, well, one thing to keep an eye on bucks denied it is that we're staring at a third base platoon that much like in August, July, when Escobar was struggling and we got a Guillerme Escobar platoon until there were injuries. Es- uh, Guillerme got hurt. If memory serves correct. If you look back and I got my scorecard, I'll show it to you. Wednesday's game against the Brewers against a righty Luis Guillerme is in the lineup. Okay. Night before against the lefty Eduardo Escobar is in the lineup day before that. I didn't score that game. <laughs> Who pitched that game? I forgot the Monday game, the game they got their ass kicked in. Oh, that was Freddie Peralta. Luis Guillerme started. That's right. All right. Let's go back to Sunday's game against the Marlins. They're facing a lefty Trevor Rogers. Eduardo Escobar starts. So we now have a track record of going all the way back to Saturday, the third game of the season. We have seen a straight platoon between Escobar and Luis Guillerme. When Buck was asked about it, he said that's not what's happening. And Escobar needed the off day. He's working on things. All I'm telling you is just follow the facts. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. That's four consecutive games. We've seen a straight platoon between Luis Guillerme and Eduardo Escobar. The easy answer, most people listening are going to say, Beatty, 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 Beatty. We got to see about Beatty. Now, luckily, the news on his um, thumb was good. It's just inflammation. But I don't think he's going from inflammation to the Mets starting lineup. Hopefully, he'll be back in the lineup in Syracuse real quick. Until they call up Beatty, I don't hate the platoon because Guillerme is so good defensively. You even go back to this game on Wednesday, and it's a forgotten about play, but the first batter of the game, Mike Brousseau, hits a line drive, and Guillerme makes this incredible dive and catch that I'm not sure Escobar is making. So while you lose the offensive potential, that's the way I'd phrase it because Escobar hasn't hit, obviously, while you lose the offensive potential with Guillerme from Escobar, and you certainly lose the pop, and we've talked about how they need pop. Guillerme does not have pop. I love the guy, and he can hit, but he don't have a lot of pop. So lineup-wise, they're obviously better off with Escobar in a world in which Escobar is hitting. But Guillerme's defense is tremendous. That That's the thing where I don't mind it, but the reality is this. I believe Buck Showalter makes his own lineups. I don't think that the front office at all is making the lineup, okay? If the manager four games into the season, Billy, is running a straight platoon at third base, what does that tell you about what he thinks about Eduardo Escobar? Pete, book sending a message to Billy Epler, and that message is, yeah, I'm going to play the guys that you give me, Luis Guillerme gives me a better chance against right-handed pitching because Escobar is such trash. If this platoon is a thing, that's another reason Brett Beatty should be up here quick. And now we're getting to a point where it's like we're talking about Alvarez make get the call. We're talking about Beatty trying to get up here. You're you're gonna have to cut ties with with a lot of guys. Like who are we? Who are you creating space for? Like who's who else is gone off this roster? 
Yeah, it's 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 not easy. I, that's the the real complicated part, like we talked about, how you make that work. I, I floated out the idea as much as I love Luis Guillerme that he actually has options left. He goes to Triple A, but then who the hell is your backup shortstop? Which is not ideal. I I, I would not. I want to make this clear because I know that one answer would be DFA Eduardo Escobar. I would not do that. I I saw too much from him in September. I think he still brings a value to this team that I, I, I'm i not even close to considering that. And that's not even in my stratosphere. But if the manager is running a straight platoon at third base between Luiski Orme in a lineup that needs pop, like think about that. And I love Luis. I'm not trying to knock him here. He's great defensively. But in a lineup that needs pop, if you're running a straight platoon, that is a... That's a message to Billy Appler. That's, hey, hey, uh, baby. Can we get a uh, baby down here, please? Baby, baby. Uh, the white flag is out at third base. It's like, hello, we need somebody to rescue us. I mean, he's made, that's, a, that's a quick declaration if you're already doing that. And it looks like with Miami, because they haven't announced their rotation for the weekend, but they're, definitely facing, they're definitely facing Trevor Rogers again. So they're clearly going to face one lefty. So we'll see if Buck keeps this up. I, I would predict on Friday for opening day against Edward Cabrera, I think he's starting the game. I think he'll start Escobar. So I think he'll break the platoon on Friday. But if he doesn't start hitting, I, I think he goes back to the platoon on Sunday, depending on who pitches for Miami. Could be Alcantara. I mean, I think that's his day, pitch Tuesday. Oh. So it very well we, could be Sandy Alcantara on Sunday. Now, besides Rodgers, I've noticed, I mean, Lazardo, who is who's been phenomenal so far this yeah. year, yep. he dominated the Mets. Wade Miley kept the Mets pretty much wrapped up, too. Is it something with the lefties? Trevor Rodgers pitched like crap. He couldn't find the strike zone. He had a lot of issues. So I'll give him a pass. The Mets are struggling against lefties. Am I they didn't do that? well against lefties last year. I mean, the Mets had issues against lefties a year ago. A part of that is, you know, their DH situation, the Tommy fan played well, excuse me, on Sunday when he got in the lineup. But, yeah, last year they had big issues against lefties. A couple of things about the minor leagues. We'll read some of your emails. Uh, obviously, we're paying a lot of attention to Brett Beatty, and that was Thumb is doing, paying a lot of attention to Francisco Alvarez, Mark Vientos, who's been playing first base. The Ronnie Mauricio thing makes no sense to me. Ronnie Mauricio is hitting the ball well at AAA, so he's continued uh, what he did offensively in winter ball, what he did in spring training. He's doing it at Syracuse. That's great. That's the good news. The bad news is he is still playing shortstop. So Ronnie Mauricio is a step away from the major leagues. He is a switch hitter who's got pop from both sides. He could make so much freaking sense for this baseball team in the next couple of months. And they're still running him out at the one position that you really, really, really don't need somebody. I can make the argument. Other than first base, that shortstop is the one position that, barring a surprising injury, there's no scenario you'll play. I could see you playing second, McNeil could play the outfield. I could see you playing third, Beatty's got a bad thumb. I could see you playing left. I could even see you playing center if you're great, you move Nimmo to a corner outfield spot. Shortstop is the most set position the New York Mets have. And Ronnie Mauricio's playing shortstop every day? Like, what the... I was about to say a really bad word. What the F are they doing? Like, can he play a different position so that if he's ready to get to the majors, he can play that position? 
All right. So I'm not, I don't want to pick on the guy, but this makes too much sense. He's not making a lot of money. If you get rid of Vogelbach somehow, trade him or whatever the case is, Mauricio comes up. He's a going to be a better bat. He's, they call him like the young Jordan Alvarez. I mean, you talk about a guy that's got pop. You got a guy that could play the field, do more things, and just sit there and just try to hit balls, dude. He is would be such an asset. I know people talk about Brett Beatty, but I think I think Mauricio is going to be the best out of all of them. Yeah, but by the way, you're right about DH being his role potentially because of the fact that he doesn't have a position other than shortstop. So that's fine, and you're right that that that's what his role would be. But why wouldn't you have him in other positions so that he has that versatility? You know, they're, 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 they're hypocrites in a way because if they care so much about defensive versatility and having a guy at the major league level who can play multiple positions, well, why not in the minors? Wouldn't you have Mauricio everywhere? And, and, and I'll tell you exactly where I want him. It's not third base because Brett Beatty's playing third base down there and he's probably the future third baseman. It's sticking him in the outfield. That's the answer. Stick his ass in left field. And if he looks like Todd Hundley out there, boo-hoo for the Syracuse Met fans. At least we find out. That'd be my answer. Now let's get to some of your emails. We got a lot of them, and I apologize that we haven't read many over the last few weeks. Uh, John Monahan, completely agree. Max needs to be better. He bleeped the bed when we needed him the most last season. He's looked horrible this season. And like you said, I'm sure he'll be on the IL within the next month. <laughs> Despite all that, I think you constantly minimize what Max did the entirety of last season. Those, quote, meaningful games at the end of last season would have never happened if Max wasn't on the team. He pitched 145 innings, had a 2.62 ERA, and was the heart and soul of the rotation for five months while Jakey milked his sore lat. <laughs> don't, don't start with me about the ground, all right? Because if you guys are going to be smart asses about the Grom, then you, you want me to? Six innings, 11 strikeouts, two runs, and the Texas Rangers won. I, I mean, we'll play that game all day. Want to compare Jake's numbers to Verlander's numbers? I'll do it for you. Jake's got a really high ERA because his first start was really bad. Justin Verlander doesn't have an ERA because he hasn't pitched. <laughs> but that's right. Jay, Jakey was milking his injuries all season long because he's soft. The only guy that won a playoff game. The only guy that showed up in the games that matter. But yeah, he's milking so loud. Um, you hate judging teams and players off small sample sizes, for example, 2023. But you love destroying Max based off a small sample size. If he continues to look like this in 2023, I'll be the first to admit I'm wrong. And I'll be crying for Jake back. But Max was a pivotal part of the 2022 team. And he will be for the 2023 team as well. All in all, I think you need to give Max more credit for what he did in 2022 and be more optimistic for what he can turn into in 2023. Love the show. Hope you guys have a wonderful opening day. Uh, and, and I love this, though. John signed his name as a Mets fan eating out of Max's palm. So I appreciate that. He has a good sense of humor. I don't think I've ever, and if I have, I apologize. I don't think I've ever diminished what he did last year. He had a very good regular season. He missed a lot of time, to be fair about that. But when he pitched, he was mostly really, really good. I don't know, because they won 101 games and made the playoffs by a large margin, that I can say they wouldn't have had those big games without Max. 
I don't know if I could say that. I, I don't know. I know that your performance as a starting pitcher is more than just the games you started. Sometimes you can impact the game after that you pitched based on bullpen usage, but I can't say they're not playing meaningful games if there's no Max Scherzer. I mean, they won 101 games, and Scherzer missed a big chunk of the year. But he was great last year when he pitched. I don't think I've ever not acknowledged that. As far as sample sizes are concerned, what are we supposed to do? He's paid to win big games. He started two really big games last year. He sucked in both of them. Like, I get that sample size matters and and normally it wouldn't be fair to judge a guy off of two of them, but those were the biggest games he pitched. So we're supposed to say no big deal. He was great in April. No big deal. He pitched six perfect innings against the Brewers in September and act like that matters more. It is what it is. He was bad in those big games. Andrew Wass. Andrew writes, Hey, guys, thanks for being the voice of the people. Wow, we're the voice of the people and making the podcast continually. Yeah, we try to do it a lot. We do. He had a a suggestion for a segment that we have some kind of call in line or a voicemail segment. So, Pete, how do you want to handle that? You want to do something like that? Yeah, the best thing to do is if you guys just uh, on social media, on Twitter, on Instagram as well, at the Hoff WFAN. Just send me like a 30-second, no more than 30-second video clip on DM, and I can pull the audio, and then we'll play it back that way. That's the easiest. That I, there uh, you go. So take care of that, and we'll have some of your audio throughout. Just don't bash the Grom. I'm just kidding. You can bash the Grom. I, I do have an observation about Jake, by the way, that's negative. So I, I, everybody sit down. I got a negative to Grom observation. I watched his two starts. Obviously not intently as I could because the Mets were on both times opening day. And then the Wednesday day, there's something missing this. uh, He he's reminding me of what happened last year where he will look dominant for about three or four innings. And you're like, Oh, that's Jake. And then his command is off. He can't put guys away. I saw that in the game against the Orioles on Wednesday. So Jacob DeGrom over the first four innings is perfect. Strikes out eight guys. I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, he's going to pitch a perfect game. In the fifth inning, he threw 30 pitches. He could not put guys away. His command was just a little bit off, and he ended up fighting through the inning. Defense didn't help him out and got through the sixth inning. Again, not an easy inning. It was a laborious inning. So game ends, six innings, two runs, 11 strikeouts, great. But it it was something off. And I don't know if that's going to just change. I don't know if that's just who he is. He can still be really effective. But it was strange because I remember seeing that a lot after he came back from the IL last year where he wasn't the same guy. And now it's expanding into another year. So I don't know what that means. I don't know what that turns into, but I've noticed that about him. Yeah, but didn't he always have moments like that? Like, did remember that one game where he couldn't get out of like, it? Was like, I think he came back after an injury. Someone that was like pitched like 40 pitches yeah. in the first inning. Yeah. Didn't allow a run. He battled. He was able yes. to get through it. So he's always had those moments. He's had those moments, but it seems like those moments are happening every game. Like every single, he doesn't have eight dominant innings call it a day. You know, I thought this start against the Orioles was it because he goes four perfect. It was like 48 pitches. He's dominating. And then in the fifth inning, just a laborious inning. It's only two starts this year, but I'm judging it off of last year. 
because that happened last year. Like even the games that I'm complimenting him for where he didn't crap the bed, it wasn't easy against the San Diego Padres in game two. It was not. He, he was on the ropes a couple of times in that game. It wasn't easy against the Braves, a game that they lost, gave up a bunch of home runs. So I, it's a knock on DeGrom, but it's just a fair observation that I don't think, and this should make us all feel better. If you're like me and you who didn't want to see this guy go, I don't think we are ever going to see Jacob DeGrom, Jacob DeGrom. Like, I think we may see a really good Jacob DeGrom, but I don't know if we're ever going to miss out on dominant Jacob DeGrom. It just feels like something's off. Anyhow, let me finish this guy's email after he uh, gave us a nice suggestion. Andrew says, anyways, this team, they suck. That's not to say they all suck. (laughs) I love emails. But Cohen's choices so far don't make any sense and haven't been building a good roster. First of all, Lindor. I hate to kill the guy, just not impressed. He's a weak, streaky hitter, and we screwed our future at shortstop in an effort to make a big splash. I'd rather have Jimenez or Mauricio. There's four good hitters on this team. Marte, Nimmo, Alonzo, McNeil. Canna's average. Escobar sucks. The new catcher, Narvaez, is okay. Worst DH situation in the league in a weak bench. Where are the superstars? They're certainly not in the rotation. I hate Max Scherzer. Him coming to the Mets and falling apart was one of the surest things I've ever seen. (laughs) Same with Justin Verlander. We gave Jacob DeGrom away for nothing to win with these geriatric pitchers. Jake, six innings, 12 strikeouts, zero runs, by the way. But that's what we're going to do today. I think he was guessing what his line was going to be on Wednesday. He was wrong. Why are we spending the most money yet there's not a spot on the field other than our closer who wouldn't even have any games to close if it had already been destroyed by the baseball gods who hate the Mets. This guy's losing his mind. I know one of these isn't on Colin Epler, but there's an alternate reality where Zach Wheeler and Jacob DeGrom are both still pitching on the Mets and how different the world would feel. Billy Epler sucks. (laughs) I got to finish this email. This is a lot of fun. I know he's here to try and get Otani. Everything Cohen's done has been structured around getting Otani. But if that's the plan, we're going to wind up as the Angels of the East Coast more than the Dodgers of the East. There needs to be a plan. And rant. That's cathartic for me. And hopefully I accurately relayed the frustration of the Met fan. Anyhow, that's from Andrew. There's a lot there. Um, I'm trying to think of where to start. The Met plan is very simple. The Met plan is they're spending a lot of money in the short term to try to win while they're building up a farm system. That's their plan. I mean, it's it's obvious what they're trying to do. They have a good core of position players that are not geriatric. And if Beatty and Mauricio and Alvarez hit, they've got an even bigger core of position players. The pitching, like we've always talked about, is going to be fluid through the years. Right now, they're building behind Verlander and Scherzer. Then Max Fried's available. Then Corbin Burns is available. And Brandon Woodruff and Shane Bieber and Shohei Otani. And that's how they're going to build their rotation. So this is not a news flash on what the Met plan is. The Lindor thing is fascinating, Pete, because I think that's going to be one of those trades that, you know, we could sit here and do a whole podcast debating that. It is going to evolve year after year after year. I think we've 
we're not even done with the Diaz trade because of Kelnick, even though he's off to an awful start. So I don't want to waste time analyzing what I rather have Andres Jimenez and Ahmed Rosario versus Lindor and then the money spent. It, it is an alternate reality. That's just a headache to go through because I think it's premature. We don't know what Lindor's tenure is going to be like here. And we don't know what Andres Jimenez is con- going to continue to be. The Wheeler thing is a Wilpon issue. That pissed me off too. I think in the alternate world of re-signing Zach Wheeler, Max Scherzer's probably not here. And maybe they are building behind the Grom and Wheeler. But listen, man, it's just, it's an alternate world that's not worth living. It's just not. Willis Rifkin, I need to read his email because he turned out to be uh, accurate. He predicted the future. He wrote this on Monday. Evan, I always hate a day off after the home opener. But this year, it's looking like crap on Thursday and beautiful weather on Friday. Do you think we'll finally use our brains and reschedule it? (laughs) Will nailed it. I am very surprised. And we'll end on this, by the way. And of course, you could continue emailing the pod, the RicoB at gmail.com. I promise we'll try to incorporate more emails throughout all these podcasts that we do. I saw the weather for Thursday. And the weather I saw for the home opener that was scheduled to be on Thursday was it was going to start raining at about three, four o'clock. Not ideal. Who wants to play the last few innings in the rain? But I could have sworn they were just going to play the game. And I'm mixed about this. And forget my own selfish situation. I'm going to go to the game either way. So this has nothing to do with me. I like the fact that they said to themselves, let's make a decision a day early. Let's avoid any possibility of rain issues and let's play it safe. I like that. I think Will Rifkin likes that. I think we all, Willis Rifkin, I think we all like that. Here's the problem. There's a lot of people, I know one in particular, a friend of mine, who was ready to go Thursday, scheduled an off day Thursday, cannot go Friday. And I know that there are people listening right now who are in the same situation where they now have to give up their tickets for Friday. So it sucks. It sucks when this is the day it's supposed to be. And with weather that doesn't even look that bad, you can it. So I'm very mixed about it because I, I absolutely see the positives of being smart and using that off day that's built in to begin with. But I know that there's a handful of people that are not going to be able to go because they couldn't go on Friday. They could only go on Thursday. Listen, I wasn't going to go either way. So I'm going to watch from the, uh, from the station and I'm comfortable with that regardless, but now I get that. And then, you know, I saw a lot of people on social media because it wasn't just the Mets that did this, the Orioles had to do this too. Yep. And I saw someone, I, I, it was a little heartbreaking because she seemed like she was going through an illness and like she had like, she had, she just came on Friday. So she's not going to be able to go on Friday. So that sucks. You got to remember there is real life attached to people that love baseball. And I heard Steve Appiah call into you and he was the one person that said, I want baseball to go on forever because it takes me away from the real life. And that's the escape that baseball really does have on a lot of people. It's, it's with us the entire spring, summer and into the fall. So to kick it off this way sucks, but not everyone's going to be happy. One last thing before we go. Who gets booed in the introductions, if anybody? Um, hmm. I think two people will. I think it's going to be Escobar. I think it's going to be Scherzer. Yeah, I'm with you on Scherzer. I think Scherzer's going to hear it because Max Scherzer's last performance at City Field was very bad. He had a chance to erase that with two really good starts to start the year, and he didn't do it. So I think... I don't think it's going to be overwhelming. I think it'll be a smattering of booze for Max. 
and maybe a smattering for Eduardo Escobar, but I think it's actually going to be Max Scherzer who faces the most of it. That's my and opinion. I and I think I heard you ask the question about whether or not Diaz was going to be there. Yes. I I don't have it in front of me right now, but I could have sworn I saw a picture of him on a plane with his feet up going to Queens. Yeah. That makes Am I sense. right with that? No, I, I haven't seen the picture, but it, it just makes a lot of sense that he's going to want to hear the adulation of the fans uh, because he's not going to get to it at any other point this season, you know, barring some kind of miraculous comeback. So it makes sense. And if that's the case, he'll get the biggest ovation. And it won't even be close. He'll get the biggest hand by Met fans. But if you are going to opening day on Friday, enjoy it. We may have a few more Ricos this week. We're popping out a lot of Ricos this week, mainly because the Mets are struggling. <laughs> Sometimes the losing brings out the Ricos. We appreciate you listening to this long-ass edition. If you missed our thoughts on Game 1 and 2 of the Brewers series, we did have an instant reaction that was posted late on Tuesday night, so you can check that out if you missed it. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for listening. Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronia podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. <laughs>